coming up on today's show. Okay, the pandemic isn't over. What can we learn from history in terms of when it might be over? The attacks on civilians in Ukraine by Russian forces have horrified all of us. Unfortunately, they're not going to end. And the current energy crisis really shows us that politicians need to move beyond putting the green energy debate up against hydrocarbons. There's once again speculation that, you know, COVID-19 is causing some problems in China, far off places. So something that's definitely on our radar. But as you know, we just reached the two-year anniversary this week of it arriving in Canada with vengeance and causing so much chaos. So uh, now if you think about where we are, obviously we're in a much different place two years down the road than we were, right? Even, Even six months ago or a year ago, things have changed dramatically. And we are seeing a return to whatever you want to call it, whatever descriptor you want to put on it. Regardless, we're seeing, you know, we're seeing crowds at concerts and, and hockey games. There's, there's no masks anywhere if you don't want to wear a mask anywhere. I mean, you know the drill. We're basically all mandates gone, right? Um, and all the while, though, we are reminded that COVID is not over. And to, to be honest, I need to be reminded that COVID is not over. I want it over in the worst way. But I understand that, okay, we can't get ahead of ourselves. But let's take a look back at history and some other pandemics that have taken place and sort of what... When did we say, okay, this is over? What ended other pandemics historically? And what can we apply from that experience to what we're going through now? Joining us is Dr. Barry Pacus, who is a York Region Medical Officer of Health and an Assistant Professor at the University of Toronto. Doctor, thank you for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. My pleasure. So, yeah, I mean, when we talk about, you know, previous pandemics, the one that seems to always be drawn in parallel with COVID-19 is, of course, the Spanish flu of 1918, that pandemic. So what can we learn about our current circumstance based on that? Well, so first of all, when we're looking at history of pandemics or looking at the history of anything, frankly, um, you know, we, we often talk about the year in which it ended or maybe even the month at which it ended. But, of course, if you're going through it, it looks very different. So, you know, we're thinking about what day is it going to end or what month is it going to end. But, you know, in history, even if we say it ended abruptly in 1918, it really wasn't, you know, abrupt at all. Um, but the Spanish flu, you know, it is the, the largest, most recent uh, pandemic, although there are, there are many others, uh, and one in which we have lots of records. Um, but influenza, which was what caused the Spanish flu, is far, far, far less infectious than um, than COVID and, and certainly than Delta or Omicron. So, you know, the dynamics are a little different. But what happened, of course, with that is it infected, you know, at least a third of the world's population and killed, you know, uh, over 100 million people. Um, and essentially what happened is enough people um, became infected and then became immune, be, you know, from that infection. And because it wasn't so transmissible, it, it ran out of people to infect. And that's really how, pandemic, how pandemics end. Yeah. Either we stop the way that it's being transmitted by some changing something environment or the the virus runs out or bacteria runs out of people to infect either because it kills them all or because people become somewhat immune. And I think that's a really good point. Like there's not a day where somebody wakes up and says, you know what, the pandemic's over now. Uh, Things happen gradually over time and we get to a point where it's just not an ongoing concern. You draw an interesting parallel to the HIV AIDS epidemic and how that one quote unquote ended. And like we say, it never really ends, you know, here's the end point, but it was treatment in that case that really sort of changed the way we talk about it, right? Certainly. I mean, that took an awfully long time. But I think it's important to recognize it wasn't only treatment, but the fact that treatment also decreased transmission. So not only do people who get treated for HIV not develop AIDS and die, but also people who are treated for HIV don't tend to transmit it to others. So, you know, each one of these diseases is very unique. And when we talk about HIV, the unique thing that allowed it to become endemic was both 
that people weren't dying. I mean, people still certainly do die, but but that it it, uh, it has a good treatment for it, and that treatment prevents transmission as well. And so that's that's very, of course, different uh, than than COVID nineteen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about the most recent SARS prior to this one. You know, the most previous coronavirus outbreak, and that was uh, the SARS outbreak that really scared a lot of people when it burst onto the scene and it caused some disruption, not to the extent of COVID nineteen, and then it just sort of seemed to just go away, and, and we don't talk about it anymore. Why did that one not reach the levels of this one? Sure. I mean, we do talk about it in public health circles, certainly, <laughs> but, but yes, it's not an, um, something that people talk about yeah. all the time because it was so much more deadly and so much less transmissible. So the first SARS killed around 10% of people that it infected, and it was, it was very difficult to transmit. You know, as we know, it was really only transmitted in hospitals for the most part or in very close quarters, and even then it was difficult to transmit. If you look at something like Ebola as well, you know, kills 90% or, or even 50% in the best case of people that infect. So people are scared of it, but it only transmits in a, in a much more restricted way, right, through direct contact with, yeah. with certain bodily fluids. What kills people, what causes pandemic is not things that are very deadly in and of themselves, but things that are much, much more transmissible. That's why Omicron, you know, people think of it as just a mild cold, which it is in many, many people, but because it's so much more transmissible, it's killed many, many more people than the original version of COVID, which in and of itself was was more deadly. So, you know, something we really need to think of because it's a bit counterintuitive. Yeah. Okay, last one. Can history teach us anything about the condition that we're in now or the state that we're in now and where we might be headed? Yes. So history can certainly teach us a a lot, just like looking at other jurisdictions can teach us something, but we need to learn things and we also need to appreciate what we should not be learning. So, you know, it's not only, as you said in your introduction, a far off place like China that uh, that COVID is having a bit of a resurgence. But actually in this past week, in places that have lost masks in Europe, uh, like the UK, we're seeing this this remarkable increase in COVID once again, not only in cases, but also in hospitalization. So, you know, I'm speaking to you guys and you're in Alberta. I'm in Ontario. We still have masks uh, right now in in public settings. And and once those go away, you know, all of us are really expecting an increase in transmission similar to the UK. The question is, you know, how far is it going to go and how might we need to respond? Exactly. Yeah. And and be responsive. Um, Doc, thank you so much for your time this morning. I appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. That is um, Dr. Barry Pakes who is uh, the York Region Medical Officer of Health and an assistant professor at the University of Toronto. My take on this whole Russia situation is is based on what I've read from the analysts, right? Like I'm not, and I've said I'm not in a position here to to say this is what they should or shouldn't do. And Mark says, well, you are speculating it would be World War III. Or maybe you stayed at a Holiday Inn last night. No, Mark, I'm not speculating. I'm being very careful not to. And I'm telling you who is is um, informing my decision, not my decision, but my opinion and my viewpoint on this. And that's, uh, Biden said it in his speech last week. Trudeau has said it multiple times. The head of NATO has said it. Um, General Petraeus, I heard him saying it. Um, Tom Nichols, who is an author and uh, a frequent guest here on the show, who studies nuclear weaponry and, and Russia and the whole situation. It's not me saying this. I think the consensus among... Uh, military analysts and NATO specialists and world leaders is um, this is where we're at. So, um, 
you're right to say that that's the, the the viewpoint that I'm giving, but it's not it's not speculation. It, it's based on what I'm reading from the people that are actually in the know and making these decisions. Uh, speaking of people like that, we're going to have another discussion about where we are uh, in Russia, and you know, there's been calls about war crimes, and we're seeing absolutely horrible, horrible images. You know, bombings of. Uh, maternity hospitals and schools and apartment blocks and all kinds of calls for Putin to stand trial for war crimes. Um, it's just horrible what's going on. It's the very, very worst of humanity on display. And sadly, as you know, this is nothing new in uh, times of war. But what's in the future? Will we see more of this? Will it get worse? Chatting about that now, we have Dr. Maris Romacala who is an assistant professor of modern European history at the University of Regina. Professor, thank you for joining us. I appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, and what we're seeing uh, play out in Ukraine, unfortunately, uh, as you write, um, it's, it's, it's nothing new. It, it, we've seen this before so many times, you know, in, in recent history and, and going back to the World Wars. This is sadly what comes in times of war, usually. Yes, um, I would say particularly what we're seeing in Ukraine is what comes when you have bombings of major cities and like uh, locations with a lot of civilians concentrated together. Anytime attacks are happening on those kinds of locations, it, I think it's disingenuous for anyone to claim that they would be surprised right. that you're going to have civil- civilian casualties. Exactly. So what we see happening now uh, at this stage in what's going on, we're, I think we're on day 20 now, um, and we're starting to see, you know, I mean, I think the, the, the maternity hospital was one that really shook people, some of the apartment mm-hmm. buildings, things like that. Um, is that sort of what you expected to be seeing at this stage of whatever this is, and where do we go from here? Uh Unfortunately, yes, that is what I expected. I will say, so um, I, I wrote an article about about civilians and my concern for civilians in Ukraine that came out on Monday, um, but I was writing it over the course of last week, and, and I started it before the maternity hospital in Mariupol was bombed, and I had to update it when that happened. Um, and I was horrified by that event, but I can't say that I was surprised. That's exactly the kind of escalating civilian casualties that I was concerned um, were going to come about. Um, As to where we go from here, um, I'm a historian, so I'm much more comfortable reflecting on things that have been rather than predicting. But based on patterns in past wars, it is unlikely that it's going to get better for civilians. It's generally the longer an attack drags on, the harder it gets to be a civilian, partially because your attacker is going to, you know, try new tactics, and those are probably going to be more deadly. And also because the longer you try to live in an area that has been bombed, you know, the fewer, um, you know, you need access to healthcare, you need access to food, and the harder it gets to access those kind of things, which is one of the things that um, the civilians in the city of Mariupol are dealing with right now. What about the fact, and is there anything in history we can look to where uh, this has not gone the way, according to all the analysts, that Putin thought it would, the way that the Russian forces thought it would, and um, they're frustrated and they're angry and they're disillusioned with what's gone on? Does that make it worse? I would imagine it would, right? Yes, I think in general, um, you, civilians are, are going to be the ones who bear the brunt of, of the frustration of attackers, and, and frustration tends to lead people to take bigger risks. And again, those risks mean usually uh, more deadly attacks. Um, so, so yes, I mean, I think it's, it's not good 
for individuals that that the civilian or sorry that the Russian attackers are frustrated, but at the same time, their frustration is a result of the uh, incredible resilience that the Ukrainian yeah. military has shown, and that is also what is protecting the majority of the civilians in Ukraine. So it, it cuts both ways. So what we're seeing, expect more of the same, right? Unfortunately. Unfortunately, yes, and I I think that that's that's part of the reality of war, and it's why trying to end the war as quickly as possible is right. everyone's goal, except, it seems, Russia. Exactly, yeah. Uh, 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 Professor, thank you so much for your time this morning. I appreciate you joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. That is Dr. Maris Romacala, who is an assistant professor of modern European history at the University of Regina. Now that we're going to have a conversation that I think should be very interesting, um, we're talking about Russia and the situation there and the impact that it's having globally. And you know that we're in a spot uh, where we are right now. The first time you had to fill up, um, the point was very clear. We're dealing with an energy crisis. Uh, the price of oil came down a bit this week, down a little bit, still about 100 bucks though. Now, um, Gas prices soaring, record levels across North America. You know all about that. And, you know, we've talked about this before on the air. All the aspirational promises and all the goals that politicians have made and campaigned on to win votes have crashed headlong into reality. Hey, guess what? We still rely on oil and gas, and we will for some time. So maybe it's time to take a step back from a lot of our wants and a lot of our goals and all the things that we talk about and say, okay, but where are we right now and how do we make sure we don't get ourselves into trouble? Because guess what? I think a lot of people would agree we're in trouble. We're going to talk now with uh, Donna Kennedy Glantz, who is Alberta's former Associate Minister of Electricity and Renewable Energy, also the author of Teaching the Dinosaur to Dance, Moving Beyond Business as Usual. Uh, Donna, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate you joining us. Oh, thank you, Shay. It's a pretty big topic, so it's huge. I'm glad we're talking about it. But you know what? It's something we should have been talking about long ago, Donna. Instead of retreating into camps and getting entrenched and yelling and screaming at each other, we should have been talking about this a long, long time ago, really. Well, we've been trying to talk about energy transition and how we bring renewables and non-renewables together ever since I was in government yeah. in, in 2012. That's been the topic, but you're right. It was one discussion in one camp and another discussion in another camp and and very little crossover and everybody is you know attached to their ideas yeah. and, and there's a pretty healthy dose of ideology here too. I am a big fan of integration. I think that that renewables and non-renewables do have to work together, and I also think hydrocarbons are essential for us to do a, a, an energy transition to a decarbonized world. I think that's part of the flow, but we've got to be more practical, yes. and I feel like we've just been stuck in um, kind of theory instead of real. I'm a farmer's daughter. I, let's get real. I, I couldn't agree with you more, and I've been yelling and screaming about this for a while. It's sort of, okay, I'm with you on all the transition and everything, but what am I going to do about this weekend when, when it's going to get really, really cold? What's our plan? <laughs> I mean, we, we still need to deal with what's right in front of us. Where we are now with what's going on, do you think this will be a big enough shock? I mean, it's the politicians that we need to start with, right, to say, okay, you know what? We need to dial back some of this rhetoric and promise-making and say, yeah, we're all still committed to these goals and these futures, but in the meantime, we still have to take care of... Will this be a big enough shock to bring that discussion back to Earth? 
I believe so, and that's why I wrote that piece for the Globe and Mail this week. It, it, it's it's very easy, frankly, to hold politicians' feet to the fire when gasoline prices go up or when electricity yeah. prices go up. Believe me, people phone the offices of politicians and they scream. That's a, a retail politics issue, and it is a lever. So, you know, now we've got people, you know, the the governments in Europe, uh, particularly Germany, coming to us saying, you guys, you in Canada have got all these resources. You've got natural gas that you haven't even started to export. We need natural gas. We need LNG. You know, you'd think that would be an incredible opportunity for a federal leader to say, you know what, we really need to look at that discussion again in Canada. It's, it's not about Alberta. Gas is across the country, and pipelines can go, you know, east and west. It doesn't need to be about Alberta, but that's just a smart reaction. And frankly, if if you're if you really are an ally and you're in NATO and you really care about people sitting in Germany right now who do not know where they're going to get energy if they cut off oil and natural gas from Russia, how are they going to run their industries? How are they going to heat their homes? That would actually be something that an ally would do, in yeah. my opinion. Makes sense. Makes sense. We've got an interesting dynamic, though, because like you, we talk about this as if the governments are the ones producing um, the fuel. And now they've got all kinds of regulations and rules around it that make it easy or hard. But ultimately, it's industry that will make these decisions you know, based in some part, at least, uh, on what government does. But it's industry that has to get involved here, too, right? Absolutely. And that, that was part of my question is, you know, it's, we could plunk this all on the shoulders of politicians. And, and while that is tempting, um, because there is pressure to bear right now, there's also a question about what is the corporate role now. And, and as you mentioned in your, your lead-in, lots of companies are making ESG commitments. They're making very ambitious commitments to net zero decarbonization plans, especially on the energy side. So what does that look like? How do we move forward? I think they have a role to play. I, I think we've seen in the United States where Biden has gone to some of the shale producers and said, you know, crank it up. And they've said, well, actually, some of our shareholders want their money back and they've been sitting around, you know, earning very little for the last little while. So we're going to keep them happy, too. So it's it's an interesting relationship between government and the energy players. It It, it isn't as cozy as some people would envision. But what will companies do? What can they do? We loaded up Trans Mountain Pipeline with so much political risk because of the regulatory process that companies walked away from it and ended up that the government had to backstop it. Keystone, you know, has the same scent around it. These are problems. So some of that is about government easing the way and government saying out loud, you know what, not just at a provincial level, but at a, at a federal level, at a municipal level, saying we support LNG. Good Lord, in Europe, in Europe. In green Europe, at year end, they said natural gas and nuclear qualified yeah. as green investments. I mean, we are really becoming a bit precious here, in my opinion, again. Now, I, I, I have a hard time arguing with you about, I think, now, we, like you say, we hear, you know, the, on, on the, um, 
the production side or on the uh, the hydrocarbon side, we know they've been trying to sell the message of, hey, we're still a factor and we can still work together with you on this. They've been forced into that situation, I think. Are you seeing any movement on the other side? It seems to me like that's... I'm still getting texts from some people saying, you know what, we, we, can't, we can't backtrack on all of our environmental gains and we can't... Um, is there going to be somebody out there who can stand up and say, you know what, we need to be a little more realistic in where we're headed and how fast we want to go? It's an interesting question, and I'm watching for it too, Shay. I, I don't see it coming out of the federal government. The only crack in the armor that I've seen, and I'm really watching, is when Justin Trudeau had a telephone conversation, and it's probably now two, two and a half weeks ago with the, the German uh, leader, and, and, you know, there was much talk about how we were going to help Germany in the fight against climate change, which is important to sure. all of us. I'm, I'm not mocking that. I sound a little bit mocking, but I'm not. But there was a hint about LNG. I, I suspect that at some point in time, I mean, companies, countries are looking to Australia. Australia, you know, drilled up natural gas after it put in place its LNG facilities, we, meanwhile, have vast reserves, proven reserves of natural gas. And, and, you know, one project after another just fell away because there was not support for it. So I think there does need to be some kind of pragmatic response, and maybe that is the wedge. There's a lot of decarbonization planning going on mm-hmm. right now, and hydrogen work is actually it's, – it's, it's viable. You can put your hands around it now. And on the oil side, the oil sands, the you know, we're seeing oil sands now going into the Gulf of Mexico, into those refineries, and they're it's being re-exported out of the United States. So, you know, we're we, we've got something that people do want, and we yes, we have to work at decarbonization, and I think most companies who say they want to do that are going to be held accountable to do that. So it's it's not like we're ignoring this. I, I feel like it's not black and white. We are on a trajectory that, you know, we are responding to yeah. climate change, but we can't do it tomorrow. We can't do it alone. And the consequences for Europe and, you know, look at countries like Poland and Hungary. I mean, they, they run on coal. Um, it's It's in our interest to help everybody find solutions who's motivated. And I think there's a lot of motivation on the table that wasn't here six weeks ago. So let's work with that. Absolutely. Uh, Great message. I appreciate you so much joining us today. Uh, Thank you uh, for your your thought on this. And I I agree with you. I really and truly do. Well, I hope your listeners... um, Enjoy the book, too, Teaching the Dinosaur to Dance. There's, there are lots of dinosaurs in Alberta, so we've got good experience here. <laughs> Absolutely. Donna, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Shay. Bye-bye. That is Donna Kennedy-Glanz, who is Alberta's former Associate Minister of Electricity and Renewable Energy and the author of Teaching the Dinosaur to Dance, Moving Beyond Business as Usual. And business as usual means different things to different people, I would think. I haven't read the book. I'm going to. Um, but I think it depends on which camp you're in. As we started the interview talking about the different camps that we retreat to when we talk about these sorts of things. And business as usual, there's a playbook that we follow. And neither of them work, right? They just don't. Uh, when, when we get into the area of, well, this is my position and I'm not budging. And, well, this is my position and I'm not budging. And then, okay, and we end up in a mess like this. 
compromise and working on, okay, well, this is the reality and we can, we can meet some of your goals and we can work in the direction that you want us to work. But at the same time, let's make sure that we're not, you know, cutting off our nose to spite our face and take a look at where we are right now. Take a look at the situation we're seeing right now, um, where it's a full on energy crisis. Like we haven't seen in 50 years. How did we get here? Well, there's a school of thought that says we put ourselves here by sort of abandoning um, some of the things that we had at hand in the interest of where we wanted to be in the future. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.